Welcome to another episode of Philly Prime. I'm Dave Schratweiser. Joining me this week is Chief Frank Van Orr, who heads up the day-to-day detective work in Philadelphia. He's a chief of detectives in Philadelphia, been in the police department 31 years. I've known him for probably 25 of those years. Uh, Real good expert on the violence problem, the gun problem, uh, gun investigations, homicide investigations. So we want to get into a little bit about what's going on in Philadelphia, because, again, violence this week kind of stole the headlines in Philadelphia. Uh, Also, some quality arrests by the homicide unit this week on a a whole bunch of murders that the police have been working on for a while. So, Frank, first off, let me say welcome to the show. Appreciate you coming in. Dave, thanks for having me. All right, Chief, let me let's start with just kind of your thoughts. on the violent situation in Philadelphia, we had 499 murders last year. We have over 160 already this year. Just just kind of generally your thoughts on what's going on in Philadelphia. Well, going through last year, we certainly were unprecedented. We're shooting victims last year over 2,200. We were up uh, well over 50%. Um, shooting incidents, which is what we describe as when shots are fired and nobody's hit, they were up over 67%. We had you know, well, just under 4,000 of those last year. And this year, we're kind of, we're up again with that unprecedented year that we have. You know, our victims are up over 36%, and uh, the incidents are up about 10%. Yeah. So it's concerning. People are uh, have access to guns. Um, they're, they're not afraid to use them. And, and when they fire them, it certainly seems like they're not hitting only who they're aiming at. They're hitting lots of other things. Yeah, a lot of bystanders, a lot of innocent people, bullets going into homes, into cars. Uh, Young people uh, under 18 years old uh, getting killed, getting shot. Those numbers are up. Uh, Women, let's talk a little bit about the young folks, the the teenagers. Uh, There seems to be an awful lot of that already this year. Right. Well, just looking at homicides, I mean, last year alone, um, we had about 35 juveniles. This year, we're, we're at the point uh, where we're unprecedentedly going to be way over that number. Yeah. Um, some of the females that were hit, juveniles, we had about 18 so far, and we're only into April. Yeah. Um, women, uh, as you said, there's a lot of that. When we look at the motives uh, between the juveniles and the women, we're seeing a lot of arguments. Yeah. But we're also seeing a lot of bystanders hit. Uh, one uh, female just last week was shot while sitting in her in her home, yeah. you know, had nothing to do with it, Bull came through the window. Yeah. Um, some of the other motives we are seeing, though, are domestic violence issues, yeah. which is, is really up this year, 11 uh, compared to seven all of last year, which yeah. is it's really okay. concerning. Could that be uh, pandemic-related, you think? A lot of folks are inside. They've been inside for a long time. Uh, we've heard the district attorney make that argument a little bit, that kind of thing. Is that just one of the factors here? Sure, it's, it's a factor, I'm certain, but there's there's a lots of other factors, the availability to guns, people yeah. um, that are not being uh, uh, properly, uh, you know, handling those guns. And we had some accidents. There are some real bad things that are occurring yeah. uh, in those situations. Let's look at these numbers for women, because uh, I was working on a piece for Fox the other night with these, and unfortunately it got delayed by another shooting at, at, down in Smyrna, Delaware. Uh, 22 women killed already this year versus four at this time last year. 78 women shot as opposed to 32 at this time last year. That's a pretty dramatic jump in both areas. Uh, I talked to a couple of street officers on the street, I should say, and and their opinion kind of was that uh, folks are not afraid to shoot at anybody now. If it's children, if it's women, it doesn't matter. If there's a a beef or an argument or uh, some type of domestic situation, the guns are coming out. Right. Well, there's, you know, there's no more fights. 
I mean, everyone seems to settle things with a gun. Yeah. And even if there is a fight, the loser goes and gets a gun. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing. And it's it's a terrible situation. Yeah. Um, the police can't be the only ones trying to handle this. I mean, somebody in the community, they have to stand up and really let us know, let someone know when, when they know someone has access to a firearm. Yeah. And let's do our best to get them out of their hands. But when they squeeze the trigger, they have to understand there's consequences. Yeah. I mean, every time they squeeze that trigger and the bullet comes out, whether they're firing it straight up in the air or firing it straight at somebody, yeah. it's going to hit something. Yeah. So uh, it's very concerning. And, you know, uh, I think some of these uh, young people who have guns don't realize that they're looking at possible federal crimes, too. You guys have got a pretty good partnership now. The U.S. attorney announced a couple of weeks ago they're beefing up. The, the help they're going to give you guys in, in some of these shootings, and they're going to take cases at the federal level, and you're looking at five automatic if you commit a crime with a gun. Uh, talk about that kind of punch that young people maybe don't understand. You may not be charged at the city level and think that something could happen and you might get off with 20 or 22 months. You could get charged federally. Right. Well, I have supervisors and detectives who are task force officers. They're assigned with the ATF, the FBI, U.S. Marshal's Office, um, the DEA. We also have uh, detectives and officers there. Yeah. But what they do is they, they look at our cases. Uh, we prepare the case, each and every case, for local prosecution, but they also review them. And many of these cases, as you said, as they promised recently, they're going to start adopting, they're going to start looking at. Mm. They've always have adopted cases, right. but I think there's going to be an increase of that. Uh, there's a thorough review that's done on our side. They also do the same review, and then they pick the right cases, and they do go federal in some of these cases. They're looking at extensively more um, time mm. uh, on the federal side. We talked to uh, Captain Matt Gillespie when he was in a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I know he, you're a big fan of his, and uh, he does a lot of good work out in West Philadelphia, that area. And, and he was saying it's almost like uh, people carry guns just in case they get into a fight with a guy, and that guy has a gun, that they'd rather take a gun pinch a gun arrest, then get shot. Right. Well, I mean, let's just talk about last year alone, yeah. right? We we confiscated about 5,000 crime guns. So far this year, we're almost at 2,000. Mm. So we're on a pace to go over 6,000 crime guns. Mm. And that is our, and, you know, like Captain Gillespie told you, he's a great guy, but we have we have 21 really hardworking captains yes. that are out there in the districts. Right. And I can tell you, I don't know what the perception is, but the officers that work out there, they, they really have answered the, the bell. Every time it rings, they answer the bell. Yeah. And, and I, they're out there stopping people every night. Yeah. They're making these uh, firearms arrests, and we're doing what we can to get them through the system to ensure that the people that shouldn't be on the street because they were carrying this gun yeah. aren't. Yeah, and I see, uh, obviously, a lot of the districts now have gotten to uh, in the social media stage, and when they make a good gun pinch or they stop somebody with a gun, it's right there. They take a picture of the gun, the bullets— Everything that came with the gun, they put it right out on social media, got another gun. The suspect might have had four priors, five priors. One guy had 17 priors last week. We talked about a couple times, that kind of thing. You must, you're seeing that. And is it good to amplify that to the public so they do understand it? 6,000 guns off the street last year, 5,000 guns is a lot of guns. Right. I believe it is. And you see, you know, I'm on social media too. And yeah. I, I'm connected with the chief or the superintendent of Chicago. And I see the chief of the NYPD. They all do it. Yeah. Everybody's putting their... They're, they're hardworking officers work out there showing the guns, mm. showing the dangerous guns that we're facing each and every day and night mm. and getting them off the street. So I, I think it's important to really message that. Yeah, a lot of extended magazines we're seeing in some of the gun pinches. That, speaking of Chicago and New York, uh, just saw some really 
unbelievable statistics on Chicago of late. This is not a, a problem exclusive to Philadelphia. It's going on in New York. It's going on in uh, Chicago, places like that. And the numbers are way up to there. Yeah, I had the, uh, the opportunity to speak with um, the chief detectives in Chicago and also one of his commanders. And, and what we noticed in our conversation is the, these issues are not uh, different. Really, we, we talked about some of our investigations. He talked about some of his. I mean, it, you could have really swapped out the city names and we're doing the same stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, do they have any kind of intel that gives you a little insight into maybe what the problem are, the problems are there? Or are they just you, you, we're looking at the same kind of thing in, in all these big cities right now? Well, you, well, you know, they do. But we're, we're, we're looking at there are some street level arguments mm-hmm. that where groups are semi-established and they're having a back and forth. Yeah. Maybe it's a, you know, some of the South Philadelphia we looked at from, from years ago was, uh, you know, was really generational, went yeah. back years. Some of the kids that are fighting, I don't even know why they're fighting. Right. But the other thing is arguments, regular arguments, seem to all end with a gun. So things that were a fist fight years ago and, yeah. the, and the gun violence was, was another factor have really evolved to be gun violence all the way around, and that's the problem. And Chicago's seen the same thing. I know in Miami over the weekend they had a, a three-year-old shot at a birthday party, and I see some of these stories, and they're very familiar to what we're seeing when we uh, go out and investigate our things every every week, every day. All right, let's talk about gun seizures. You guys work with the uh, state attorney general's office, gun strike force guys, uh, Pat Mangold and that group. Um, I know you were out on a couple of gun raids of late yourself up early yes. in the morning and out there kind of thing. And and who do they target and, and what are they trying to do that's different that the everyday police officer on the street does in, in terms of confiscating guns? Well, investigations have become complicated now. We're not only in the, you know, we do a surveillance, we're seeing what people are doing, but people people have contacts, people are digitally involved. Now we, we have video that we look at. Uh, there's all kinds of factors that we include into our investigations. When you talk about the attorney general's office, they're really looking really strongly at these these ghost guns. Mm. You know, something that, you know, back in 2019, we've seen under 100 of them. You know, last year we had 250. This year alone, we're already already just under 200. So yeah. we're going to well surpass that. Yeah. So it's good that the federal government's trying to address, you know, the legality of even having these, but the problem is simple to obtain, mm. um, easy to get, not traceable, so it becomes very difficult to combat people getting a hold of these guns. All right, if folks don't know what a ghost gun is, it comes in a kit. You can order it online. It's uh, three or four, two, three hundred dollars. It comes in pieces. Uh, you can be a convicted felon and order one of those. Uh, and when it comes to you, you need to put it together. We won't get into how you do that, but there have gone so far as this YouTube videos on how to do that, believe it or not. That you put the gun together, you have to fire it a couple times to make sure it works, but there's no serial number, there's no background check, and even a convicted felon can get it. Those are like three kind of recipes for a disaster right there. Absolutely. Yeah. And and when we do some of these search warrants, if we don't find the guns, we find the kits. Yeah. So we know people are utilizing this easy service, putting the guns together. Mm. So it's definitely another piece to the puzzle that we have to remove to try to reduce this gun violence. And those guns are not really super reliable. I'm not knocking the product. I'm just saying sometimes if it's not put together properly or whatever, that can kind of backfire on the person who's using the gun or might go off prematurely in a situation and shoot somebody that maybe they didn't intend to shoot when they went and did a robbery or something like that. They're kind of shaky 
uh, in the wrong hands. I agree, and yeah. none of it's good to give to someone, especially yeah. younger people that yeah. don't have the experience with the firearm, yeah. and they're going to squeeze that trigger, and yeah. God knows what's going to happen. Now, I know you haven't seen a lot of these, but I did a piece on one uh, a week or so ago about these the, these guns that actually look like a, uh, a phone, uh, and they open up, and they uh, three shots, uh, almost like a Derringer back in the day. Yeah, I think we recovered one in Northwest Division just last week. Yeah. Uh, and it, it does. It looks like a cell phone. Yeah. So it could be in your pocket. I mean, police officers always worry about a concealed weapon uh, with somebody like that. That's That adds a whole new wrinkle to that, does it Absolutely. not? Yeah, I mean, Absolutely. You, you might think the guy has a phone in his hand, and maybe it's not a phone. That's know? right. And it becomes very dangerous. And who knows when he puts it down, who picks it up? we got kids picking up yeah. real guns. But what if they pick up something like this? Yeah. Um, the task force guys, um, usually when you hear a task force, you think long-range stuff. Uh, they do some quick stuff, too. Uh, they'll, they'll get on to somebody who may possibly uh, they think is dealing ghost guns. In fact, I think they had a case. The AG did a big news conference on a Sunday talking about guys who were buying gun kits from, uh, from the gun shows. And, in fact, I think he's gotten an agreement now with the biggest gun show uh, sponsor in the state, to stop selling these guns. That's a positive step for you guys, is it not? Sure. The Attorney General's task force really does. They're, they're doing some really good work uh, with the manufacturers, with the dealers. They look at the people, making sure that they're selling them the people that are qualified to buy them, mm-hmm. and, and what needs to be done in the front end is done. And if it's not, then some of their investigations, and we're working along with them, right. uh, result in people getting arrested. Okay. Um, I, I promised to talk about this at the beginning, so let's talk about a couple of these uh the homicides in Philadelphia, as we've spoken about, are up over about 30 percent, I think, right now, 33 percent, 32 percent. But um, on Wednesday of this week, uh, the Homicide Unit and your office and uh, the District Attorney's Office announced uh, two pretty important arrests. Um, one was uh, at the Philadelphia Mills Mall. Uh, I covered that. It was uh, the kind of thing that scares people when somebody goes into a, gun, into a mall like that. Uh, wasn't very crowded that day, but pulls out a gun after when a fight starts, and it's a typical thing we're talking about. It starts as a fist fight and escalated into a gunfight in the food court there. Uh, you guys had kind of all hands on deck on that to solve that. Talk about what happened uh, yesterday with charging that gentleman in that case. Greg, right. Well, Gregory Smith, I believe, is the guy it was, we're about. It was some great detective work. I was out there that day. I mean, we were blessed with a lot of video evidence, um, and we knew uh, the decedent— uh, Uh, When he arrived, we knew who he was with, Mm. um, and we were able to follow their actions leading up to when they arrived at the mall, um, who else was present at the mall. And and when we watched this video, it it was a simple fist fight until the gun, until the bullets started to fly. And and once that happened, um, they exited the homicide detectives. And I I have to give them uh, kudos to men and women that work there. They're dedicated. A lot of sacrifices go into taking that Mm. position. Mm. Um, They work very uh, hard um, to trace the steps back, identify the individual, Mm. um, put everything together, uh, signed and sealed. The the, uh, attorney general's office actually approved that case Mm -hmm. uh, because the decedent's dad worked in the district attorney's office right um and once we had everything together um they approved the warrant and we were able to find that individual uh, just yesterday yeah you talked and a little bit about social up. media a part of the whole thing is tracking uh was the victim 
and or that suspect on social media, possibly before this, kind of talking about a beef, maybe there's an ongoing thing, things like that. How important is tracking that social media stuff right now? Well, I know a, the intelligence unit does that, right? It's a big part of our uh, job, and, and not only the intelligence unit does it, but the detectives, the ones that are getting good at their job now, are very good at working social media. Yeah. I mean, you could pretty much see, uh, you know, the decedent in that case chronicle, chronically uh, tells people where he's going. Yeah. I'm arriving at the mall. I'm, I'm here with whoever he names. Mentioned, and then as mentions he a couple in, of his pals behind right. him. It's seconds before he gets shot. Seconds before. Yeah. So that's all part of it. We, we're, it's like a footprint to the investigation, and we really have to keep moving through that 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 evidence yeah. so that we get to it. Years ago, we had arrived at the scene. We had to find eyewitnesses. Yeah. Um, we had to make sure that they were on board and they were straight up and they would testify. Mm -hmm. And then we'd, we'd piece things back, start interviewing family, try to figure out what occurred in the past. Right. They're really leaving us the case, and, and it's up to us to find it and yeah. put it all together. Yeah. Uh, in this case, uh, Dominic Billa was the victim here. Um, he's on social media walking into the mall talking about a, a, a few things, with, it, and he has his buddies with him, kind of identifies who's with him at that point and then and then the fight starts just so people understand this was right out in front of a french fry hamburger place it was a food court food right court. it was one of the food courts and bullets are flying all over the place there uh i believe uh, if i remember correctly from the scene described to me uh there was a high chair at a table that had been vacated when the gunshots fired and it was still food on the table that could have been a young child getting shot in there i'll tell you when i looked at the video to that i arrived at the scene it wasn't just one table with food on it there were multiple yeah. so how only one person got struck with uh, with you know ballistics in this case is yeah. unbelievable yeah gregory but, smith who's charged in that case now uh, he has some uh, priors from uh, what i understand he's 21 years old i don't know what his extensive record is or anything like that but uh it's a troublesome spot there. right absolutely yeah. and and it's it's uh you know hopefully everybody involved in that case is is going to yeah. answer for it in court but oh. uh, he's charged with murder okay um second big arrest uh this week and uh this ends up solving four murders total uh under arrest is rodney hargrove i believe is the gentleman's name he's six, I, excuse me i, I, yeah, he's, I think he's, the, he's the he's the victim excuse one, me one of the victims he's the one of the victims in the case the suspect in the case is 16 year old amin hurst um you guys put out his photo put out his name he's 16 years old because he's being charged as an adult this is the murder where a uh, inmate up at the current Fromholtz prison had just gotten out, literally released around 1 o'clock in the morning. He's waiting for a ride home. That's Rodney Hargrove. And as he's waiting, a car pulls up and allegedly outsteps uh, Amin Hurst, and he opens fire. A and if I heard correctly, we now think that was a case of mistaken identity. Yeah, that's yet to be determined through the uh, – and that's an ongoing case, so I won't get into all the motive. But we know we know that, that – uh, Rodney Hargrove standing there waiting for his ride mm. um, when the car passes him. So whoever passes him, uh, who else is in that car, must believe they see who they're looking for. They turn to go back. He realizes they're now looking at him, and he runs back to the prison, yeah. uh, towards the prison anyway, and, and he's chased and eventually shot uh, by uh, Amin Hurst yeah. in the parking lot of the prison. All right, so in, in all of this detective work, uh, plays a big role because detectives are already looking at a Christmas Eve uh, homicide up on Wynwood Road. They're looking at a March 11th quadruple shooting in which two people died. And uh, up pops Amin Hurst as a suspect in both of those. And now he stands charged 
with those three murders and the murder at the prison, four murders on a 16-year-old. Right. And, and from what I, I talked to many investigators, some of them just today, um, that worked Southwest for many years, mm -hmm. and um, they knew Amin Hurst from when he was 14 and 15. Mm -hmm. um, he was arrested previous uh, for weapons charges as a juvenile. Um, he was, that was adjudicated. I, I, I wouldn't have the answers to mm. what happened with those cases. Yeah. Obviously, some of those cases went into the, the COVID period, so yeah. court was slowed down. But he, he exited prison um, based on um, the charges. He was able to get out, uh, given back to his parents yeah. uh, during that period of time. And then four people from that, four people lost their lives. Yeah. Um, the two behind the apartment building, um, we believed were shooting a rap video. Um, there were there were multiple people out there that day when uh, when the shooters popped up and, mm -hmm. and began to fire. Yeah. Um, the episode at the prison, uh, we were able to connect these things. And like I said, we worked very hard with social media, um, looking at ballistic evidence, looking at video evidence uh, that we recovered from the scenes to put these together, mm -hmm. uh, to look at all these. So very scary that a 16-year-old mm -hmm. um, took four people's lives and and was really on that road for many years and and was unable to be stopped and this starts christmas eve and ends in march and, and some people might call him even at 16 years old a, a serial killer that that's four murders in like a four-month time period yes i mean i agree i yeah. agree he was definitely and and i got to be honest the detectives i talked to today um, they're still investigating his activities i mean that's a long period of time mm. um, but he was known as a shooter uh, couldn't prove some of the past incidents. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, they arrested him for four separate other ones when he was a juvenile, so mm -hmm. uh, they were not adjudicated. So we're not sure. We're yeah. not sure how much uh, this person could have been involved in. A uh, quick question, if you know, do they have a gun yet in, in, in that case? And I believe they, they do. And uh, usually tell us what happens once you recover a gun and you have a guy who's already right. on paper for four murders. What do, what do you do with the with Well, the these are active there? cases, so I won't comment yeah, no, no, on I this. I won't get into that. Yeah. What happens is our firearms identification unit will fire the weapon and will right. test fire it. Mm. And then we get those and we enter those into our NIBIN system, mm. National Integrated Ballistic Information Network. Mm. Uh, so that goes in. It's, it's compared against all the shell casings we recover. Mm. Shell casings recovered in other cities. Mm. The ATF's involved in helping us with this. Right. So uh, just this year so far, we've had, you know, just short of 900 hits mm. in Nibin, which means this shooting evidence is connected to that shooting evidence. Now, that doesn't mean the same person had the gun. Right. That doesn't mean anything. We have to do a lot of investigative work yeah. to use Nibin uh, as, a, as a tool. But, you know, last year we had just over 3,000 hits. Mm. So each year uh, we're, we're using the evidence. We're getting better at it. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of leads to come out of it. Uh, they're produced by the ATF and some of the task force officers I spoke to mm. that are over there. So once we get a lead, we get to follow up on it. It's, it is what it is. It's a lead. Mm. You okay. know? So well, one of the other things you, you guys do and you don't talk about it a lot is now we take DNA swabs off guns as soon as we recover them and, and off the suspect to see if, in fact, he had the gun in his hands. And that helps your case in court. Right. So in 2020, I think we had over 2,000, almost 2,100 VUFA arrest or our Violation Uniform Firearms Act. Uh, when we do that now, and we've worked this out with the district attorney, we, we have a collaboration where we look at the gun cases each week, but we are taking DNA evidence off the gun. We're taking sample DNA evidence with a, with a court order off the individual that's arrested to ensure we could connect them with that gun. Mm. Now that's whether it's taken off their person, their vehicle, inside their house. Mm. Um, detectives been trained to do it. 
Um, you know, we the swabs we use are the same as they're using the test for COVID. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a five-minute period where we had a little trouble getting them. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're, we, we got a source again. The city was able to get them, and, uh, and we're using them. They're, they're a great tool. Yeah. Now, so, some people would, critics would say, why weren't you doing that before? Because you couldn't turn around DNA that quickly before. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Talk about how much that process from my time on the street in Philadelphia, 25 years to now, the, the timing of when we first started taking DNA till now, flipping that around and getting a result is incredible how quickly they can do that now. Right. Well, technology changes and, and science changes. And we, we got a great forensic science bureau. Mm. But when you talk to the director and we speak to them all the time, yeah. it, we're even, you know, we're, we're starting to, the capacity that we're delivering to him mm. is becoming difficult for him to produce. But he does his very best to keep up with it. Mm. Uh, firearms, uh, people to keep up with the firearms analysis, DNA swabs go yeah. into the chem lab. Yeah. Um, obviously, to prioritize the shooting cases, the violent cases. But we do DNA on burglary cases if we have to. Right. So all that stuff's getting poured into the same uh, resource. Sometimes there's gunshot revenue residue tests mm. that have to go through. So all these tests have to be ordered up. Yeah. Uh, in many cases, the, the medical examiner is asking for some tests to be done. So when all these things are done, it's another piece that we have. Right. You talked about the meeting you guys have every week on gun cases. The purpose of that meeting is what? To improve um, the quality of the prosecutions. So we make sure guys who get arrested on a gun charge don't get out, don't get the bail that maybe they want to get, but they get what the DA's office and the police want for bail. And if there are multiple offenders, you keep a guy like that behind bars. That's, that's the, the end game here, correct? Right. Well, the district attorney, I mean, obviously has to get to court. And they have to face motions. Hey, this wasn't my gun. Uh, you know, I didn't even know it was there. Mm. So when we have a piece of evidence like DNA on the gun that belongs to the person, it kind of defeats that before we even begin. Mm. So that's one thing. We're, we're really helping their prosecution. We're defeating some mm. uh, defense motions that are going to come up, alibis, uh, reasons why they're going to say uh, they weren't connected to that gun. Yeah. Now, clearance rate, You uh, the criticism that sometimes come back on the police department is that the clearance rate in the homicide unit is down. Uh, I know the homicide detectives, and I've known them for a long time, are working real hard to make that improve and improve quickly. Um, talk to me a second about, you know, a young child gets shot on a basketball court out in West Philadelphia, two 17- and a 15-year-old, two separate incidents. We need people to come forward and help the police on these things. Word travels in the neighborhood quickly. I know who did that. These guys did it, that kind of stuff. You, you need neighborhoods to step up in addition to doing police work, correct? Absolutely. It always helps to have people come forward, point us in the right direction, give us the bona fide information that we could use mm. in court. Um, but in any respect, if they trust the police, uh, and, and, and we all know that, you know, that's down at this point. We have to rebuild that trust in some neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, but when we get the people uh, cooperating, when they call us, when they trust the police captains that are out there, the officers that work out there, mm. we go a lot further. And you would be surprised how many people, you know, they trust the officers they've known for years. They still call them. Yeah. They still tell us what's happening. Yeah. And it points us as investigators in the right direction. Well, let's talk about the chief. I went to a home, uh, a uh, town watch meeting a couple of weeks back, in, in, and I, I mentioned this when Captain Gillespie was here, too. Folks, you can tell in a room like that, they really care about their neighborhood. And, and the Christie Rec Center at, at that point, so many old heads like me came up through that rec center, not me, but I mean in their neighborhood, and, and they don't want that kind of activity right there. But they, people have to realize you can flag down your local beat officer and say, hey, I heard Joe Jones 
might have been involved in that, and, and he passes that on, and it kind of at least helps the detectives walk in a certain, you call it direction. We have direction on a case. Right. People need to understand, you don't have to get on a stand. You, you could at least help the police get this thing started, right? Right. But we, we also understand people are scared. There are a lot of people, you hit it right on the head, that really want to help. Mm. But they also will tell us off to the side, you know, I got I to come back and live here. Mm. So we got to build that trust so they understand that we're not going to publicize what they're telling us. Right. We're going to use it to get that. You know, most of the crime is committed by a very small number of people. Yeah. And we all know that. Trying to weed those people out and make sure they don't affect the overall uh, safety in the city mm. is what we're trying to do. All right. Chief, listen, this is a gr good first part to this. We're going to do a second part. We're going to start talking about a little bit about these investigations, how you guys are trying to make improvements in the investigation so that the charges stick when they, when they get to court. You've got to satisfy the district attorney. Sometimes you've got to satisfy the state attorney general. Sometimes you've got to satisfy the U.S. attorney in Philadelphia. That's a tough bar sometimes to meet. But you guys are doing a lot of things differently to make that happen. We're going to talk about that in part two. But Frank, thanks for joining us this week. Chief, it's always good to have you. And it's, uh, like I said, I've known Frank for a long, a long time. Uh, we've been through a lot of uh, street stuff uh, together. And I appreciate you coming on and uh, look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you, Dave.